This week on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Father Craig Fossick, Eucharistic preacher on the Eucharistic Revival for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, talks about the Eucharistic Revival that is going on in the United States. Father Fossick is being interviewed by Divine Mercy Radio's on-air host, Cody Marincer. Um, Father, is there anything that you want to mention before actually we start um, talking about the Eucharistic revival itself? No, I'm, I'm glad to be with you, Cody, uh, and I'm delighted to, to support Catholic Radio, that's for sure. Um, and my uh, my main reason for being on, I suppose, is because I work with the National Eucharistic Revival Executive Team. Uh, so I'm, I sit on that uh, board to assist with the national facilitation of the revival. So to share some thoughts from that angle. That is awesome. Uh, you know, uh, we, uh, as I said, I'm a convert, so I knew that um, this was one of the big sticking points for me. And um, I know for um, a lot of other people, maybe um, there are people out there listening who aren't Catholic, um, or maybe there are some who are, but just don't really understand um, the Eucharist for what it is. Um, so can we start there with um, when we say the Eucharist, um, what do we mean? And then also, when we're talking about Eucharistic revival, what does that mean? Sure, that's great. Well, to to speak to the sticking point that you mentioned, Cody, that's actually kind of a recent phenomenon. Um, in the first thousand years of the Church, there was no sticking point with regard to the Eucharist. It was held by all Christians. Um, and it wasn't until kind of the 13th, 14th century that uh, disputes really began to arose, arise about this. And so, I mean, when you, in the early 1500s, um, the, the understanding across all of Christendom was that Jesus Christ is present in the Eucharist, you know. But then by the end, after we have the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s, there was a book. This is interesting. There was a book t- titled uh, 200 Ways of Understanding the Eucharist or Understanding the Meaning of the Lord's Supper. 200 different ways, like opposing ways. of understanding this. So it went from one to 200 in a matter of a century. So that sticking point that you mentioned is, is not a, it's not an ancient uh, dispute as far as what Christians hold, um, but it is uh, more recent. Anyway, so just to throw that out there at the beginning, I I always find that to be a very interesting, important note to make. But when we talk about uh, the Eucharist, the the word Eucharist from the Greek word uh, simply is an act, a verb meaning to give thanks. Uh, giving thanks. And we see Jesus doing this. Uh, the word Eucharist is not there in the English, but the, the verb, the words giving thanks are throughout the Bible. And we see Jesus do that um, principally in three places. One, he does it at the uh, multiplication of the loaves and fishes when they have a need to, to feed the crowds. He takes bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he gives it to them, right? There's that pattern. But in the pattern, he, he says, give thanks. Take, give thanks, break, and give. And when that pattern is important because um, that pattern is repeated at the Last Supper. Jesus takes bread, gives thanks, breaks it, and gives it to his disciples to eat. Uh, and St. Paul in 1 Corinthians also goes back to that. I receive from the Lord what I give to you, that on the night he was handed over, took bread, and after he had given thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body. So we see that pattern of taking, uh, giving thanks, breaking, and giving, but we also see the, that phrase, giving thanks. That's Eucharist. That's Eucharist saying. That's, that's what this is. So he's giving thanks. It's the thanksgiving offering to the Father of him of his very self, and then he gives himself to us. So that's where the word Eucharist comes from. And then the third place, so I mentioned there's three places, right? One is the breaking of the multiplication of the loaves. 
Then we have the uh, institution narrative where he takes the bread and gives it as his flesh to eat. And then on the road to Emmaus, uh, the very first day of the resurrection, the very first day of the resurrection, Jesus comes along with his uh, those two downtrodden disciples, you know, on the road to Emmaus. And he does a liturgy of the word with them. He teaches them the scriptures that they might understand the Christ. And then as he arrives at the place, he goes into the place, and then he takes bread. He blesses it. He gives thanks. He blesses it. He breaks it, and he gives it to them. That pattern, again, is given on the very first day of the resurrection, and he gives thanks. It's the thanksgiving offering to the Father of his very self, and then he gives his very self. So that's what we're talking about. That's a lot. It's a mouthful. (laughs) Uh, But that's where the word Eucharist comes from. It is it is the verb that we use for when Jesus gives thanks to his father with bread that he turns into his very self, bread and wine that he turns into his very self and then gives to us. And so the, the bread that is blessed, the wine that is blessed, consecrated, we say, huh? And become his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Um, there's a lot of different words we can use to denote what that is. In the early church, breaking bread was used in the scriptures. We see that the Eucharist, uh, obviously was used in the early church, and we've used it throughout, con- connoting that verb use of giving thanks. The Holy Mass, you know, for the celebration. Um, the Lord's Supper would be another way. There's a lot of ways of talking about it, but we, we've preferred over the centuries to say the Eucharist because it's the gift of Jesus himself that he gives to us. Having given thanks to his Father, now he gives of what he gave thanks, which is his very self in his body and blood. So that'd be a first thing on the Eucharist. Why do we need a Eucharistic revival? And um, kind of what does it look like then? Sure. Yeah, so we've we've uh, denoted what Eucharist means, but I want to just finish this. Oh, sure. When we speak of we, when we speak of Eucharist, um, a lot of pers- a lot of people could think that we're speaking about a thing, uh, we're thinking we're talking about a, a sign, we're talking about a you know whatever this, this gift, uh, as good as this gift might be, what like uh, the thing that we that we have. It's a Eucharist. It's a you know an object or something like that. But we do not understand that. Uh, we understand that the Eucharist is not a thing. The Eucharist is Jesus. <laughs> like the Eucharist yeah. is Jesus. So we use the word Eucharist, but we could use the word Jesus, you know. So yeah. anyway, so I just want to say that. So when we're talking about a Eucharistic revival, what what is a revival? A revival is a work of God. A revival is a work of God acting through his Holy Spirit to bring people to life, to bring a nation, to bring a people group, to bring a an area to life. Uh, to vivify them, to bring them, to give them life, right? So that's what a revival is. So in the United States of America, a Eucharistic revival means that we are begging the Holy Spirit, a work of God would be done in our nation, that we would come to love Jesus, that we would absolutely come to love him. This is the, this is Pentecost, right? Pentecost was that, that first revival. Uh, there was a prophecy in the Old Testament uh, that God would come and he would revive the dry bones bringing them back to life. And this is fulfilled in Christ in his Paschal mystery, his death and resurrection on the cross. But then he says, wait for the promise of my father, go and pray and wait for the promise of my father and the gift of the Holy spirit is given. Right? So that's, Mm -hmm. that's Christianity. Christianity is a revival. It is a movement of God. It is the work of the Holy spirit converting us to, to follow in love with Jesus who was sent by his father to redeem the world so that we would lift Jesus high as the King and Lord of all of human history, that all people would love him, that every knee would bow at his name, uh, that he would be elevated as King and Lord of all things. Right? So this is, that's Christianity. Uh, And so what we are proposing in the United States of America is that we 
focus on that first and foremost, which we always should be, right? Yeah. That our the entirety of the Christian church is to petition God to supp- supplicate the Holy Spirit and to ask that we would come to life in Christ, that we would be made to be alive in Christ. This is what St. Paul writes over and over and over, that you would be made alive in Christ Jesus. So yes. that when you when you hear the word Eucharistic revival, you might think, okay, it's like a it's a, it's a program to focus on a thing. Not true. <laughs> it is the work of the Holy Spirit to to awaken and vivify the church throughout the ages, and we're just calling that to the front and center right now. Yeah, as you say that beautiful words, Father. Thank you for that. That it kind of brings to mind. Um, I'll try not to mess this up, but um, Father Mike Schmitz did a talk on um, praying the Mass like never before, is what it's called. Um, in it, I think he says the heart of religion is worship, and the heart of worship is sacrifice, and what is our sacrifice? Our sacrifice is Christ Himself. Yeah, it's 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 not um, it's not a symbol or anything like that. Um, and and everybody knows that every Christian everywhere understands that the sacrifice made for us is Christ um, and His death on the cross. Um, and so I think you know that um, maybe you can expand on this, but I think maybe that is one of the important things to remember that like when we're going to Mass, we're not there for an experience. Right, um, we are there to offer the sacrifice which was offered for us. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think the 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 very important thing for us to connect here is something that Jesus leaves connected, but we've tried to disconnect. What he does on Holy Thursday night with his apostles, where he takes bread and he takes wine, he he does that in view of the cross, and you can see it in his very words: "This is my body, which will be given." for you. Mm-hmm. And then he takes the chalice. This is my blood, which will be shed, which will be poured out. He's, he's, he's connecting what he is giving there to the sacrifice, which will take place on Friday. So for these, for Jesus, these two things are inextricably connected. His offering in an unbloody way of the bread and wine on Holy Thursday, and then the bloody offering on Friday. And the reason why I say unbloody and bloody is because this is coming out of a Jewish context. In the Old Covenant, you have just a very brief sketch. In the tabernacle, a tent that Moses was told by God to erect, there was three areas. There was the outer court, there was the holy place, and there was the holy of holies. In the outer court was an altar where there were bloody sacrifices, bulls, uh, various various animals that were uh, slaughtered and then put onto the altar as a sacrifice, a bloody sacrifice of an animal before God. Once you get into the the holy place, there is bread and wine on a table called the show offering or the bread of the presence, the bread of the offering or whatever. This is an unbloody sacrifice that takes place in the uh, in the holy place. So for the Jewish people, there was unbloody sacrifice and bloody sacrifice in the one area of worship, the one tent, the tabernacle, right? And so this is for Jesus this is what he's doing at the last supper is the unbloody sacrifice of the blood and the wine, of the bread and the wine. On Friday, he's doing the bloody sacrifice of the offering of the flesh of a, of a being, which is himself, right? So for him, they're inextricably, inextricably connected. And so the one sacrifice that he offers on Friday for the salvation of the world, the one sacrifice which will never be repeated, we participate in it in every celebration of the unbloody sacrifice of the bread and wine that he did on Thursday night. And this has always been understood. I mean, it's, there's preparations in the Old Covenant. It's fulfilled in Christ, and the Christian church has, has uh, faithfully um, celebrated it from the first century. Absolutely. And I think it was, uh, uh, was it uh, Jerome who said, um, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. 
Um, mm-hmm. And 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 I, I love that you bring up that because sometimes uh, we have to understand that um, uh, things that may maybe we don't understand it may be because we don't understand our history. Um, and I would say that if we don't understand the history of Judaism correctly, then we won't understand the Eucharist correctly. And like you said, you know, um, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to know um, where, uh, where we come from so that we can understand um, what we are talking about. To be able to create this revival um, and be able to get back to um, loving our Lord the way that we should, um, how is the church kind of leading us in this charge? Oh, well, this is there's a whole lot we can say here. So, I, I, as I mentioned <laughs> okay. at the beginning, I, I work with the executive team, and so there are uh, elements being established at every possible level. So, but what we say about the revival is that it's a, a grassroots revival, and I think this is this is primary. Um, grassroots meaning that the Lord God wants to touch every believing heart individually, personally, where they are, to bring them to life. Uh, that they would there would be an awakening, a deepening of surrender to to lordship of Jesus and the power of His Holy Spirit, where they are, wherever they are, even if nobody from some sort of national office comes and says, "Hey, we're doing a revival," that they would be touched by the Lord. So that's what we're praying for. We're praying for the, for God to to work a revival in the hearts of the faithful, grassroots, which means that anyone, wherever they are, can act. Uh, and I don't just mean like activism, but like they can act, they can pray, they can intercede, they can sacrifice, they can uh, be formed, they can grow, they can collaborate, they can partner, they can uh, serve. You know, there's just there's an infinite number of ways. And we can talk about that maybe at the end um, okay. of the program. I like to kind of end with uh, a prayer to the Holy Spirit, you know. But uh, so that's the grassroots part. Um, but of course. The church is also an institution, so we we also have parishes, we have dioceses, and we have uh, the the bishops' conference where they work together and collaborate. You know, so there's there's things being done at every level, and so the revival we're kind of laying it out in three years. The first year, which we're in right now, we're calling the diocesan phase. Uh, the next year, starting this coming June, will be the parish phase, and then the third year will be a, a collaboration of both a national a national gathering and a and a, um, a commissioning uh, of people at the, at the very smallest level, uh, at, at the individual level, to just send them out as missionaries into the world, Eucharistic missionaries. So that's kind of the thrust. And so during the diocesan phase, if there's people that are like, yeah, I heard there's a revival, but I haven't seen anything. Uh, the This first year is really devoted to uh, working and collaborating with bishops and their diocesan offices, the people that work there, pastors, to work with them uh, that they would that they would renew their love of Jesus on uh, the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, a living relationship with Jesus, so that they might be again set on fire, on a deeper fire, a larger fire, however we want to put that, so that they would then bring, um, after this year of diocesan revival, that they would bring that revival into parish life. And so if people haven't been seeing much, hopefully they will, beginning this coming June when we move into a parish uh, year of revival. And so to that end, uh, during the diocesan year um, at the national office, we've been assisting creating a number of resources. There's a website 
uh, National Eucharistic Revival website. Uh, there is also a newsletter that we publish every single week, and I'd love for everybody in the whole country, we're hoping to get 3 million people to subscribe to this newsletter because it's the main mechanism of the revival to kind of keep a weekly beat on what's happening in the church and what's coming, what's being planned for the years to come. Um, so that's part of the revival newsletter. If you go to the National Eucharistic Revival website, you can just find the heart of the revival, which is the newsletter, and you can sign up to get that every week. It's a short newsletter with uh, in- inspiring and uh, testimonies and conversion stories and programmatic things that the, the USCCB and the church in the United States are, are up to and planning. Events all over the country are highlighted there. So a really beautiful website with a lot of formation materials on it. So that's National Eucharistic Revival website. Heart of the Revival is a newsletter that's out weekly that people can subscribe to. People can also on that website sign up to be prayer partners. Uh, they can also sign up to be Eucharistic missionaries. And these are just grassroots way for a person to click a button and then for them to start to be equipped individually to start acting where they are right here and right now. So those are some things we're doing uh, at the national uh, level just to assist. Uh, we're also, uh, we've also launched what, we're called, what we called a, a playbook, the diocesan playbook. And so we've published that, it's on the website, but we've given it to every diocese in the country uh, this past year so that they can look at a number of different pillars um, and ways by which they might approach a this uh, missionary conversion that we're looking for in parish life in in the, in the Catholic world in America of a living relationship with Jesus in the in the Eucharist. And uh, in that in that playbook, people can go look at it. We we focus on a number of places: unity, healing, conversion, and formation. And then this grassroots outpouring. Uh, so there's different areas in there, like how can we work in the diocese to unify our Catholics? How can we work to to heal in this time of post-pandemic or national division or all these different things that are going on, right? Uh, how can we work for the deeper conversion of every person and every institution that we have? And how can we really be formed in a, in a deeper way in our Catholic faith? So those are, those are some of the things that are happening during this year of diocesan revival. There's a whole lot more we can say about the parish year and then the, the missionary sending year. Okay, wonderful. I really appreciate that you uh, brought that up um, about the grassroots level, uh, because uh, and I'm I'm sure that you see this as a priest, um, and uh, I'm sure that uh, people out there listening will understand when I say that um, sometimes as lay people, uh, I think we misunderstand our role. Um, and I think that, you know, we, uh, there are a lot of times people are like, well, how come the priests aren't out doing this and this and this and this? And I would say, well, that's not the priest's role. Uh, you know, as a priest, your job is to form us lay people, um, and then it is our duty to go out there and to proclaim it to the rest of the world. Um, and I think, you know, um, part of that reason is because um, as a priest, um, especially if you walk out um, in your clerics, um, people, some people automatically have an aversion to you. Yes or no? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Some. Now, not all. Hopefully there are some people that um, uh, very much respect your office. But some people, yeah, if you were to approach them in a manner um, of, um, of trying to share the gospel with them, whatever way God's calling, you know, they may have an initial, uh, no thanks. Um, whereas um, lay people, that's what we're called to do in our jobs um, and wherever we are in our families and stuff like that. Um, we're supposed to take um, what uh, we are being formed with and then go out into the world with it. Um, and to, um, would you have anything to add to that, Father? Yeah, well, I would just say everybody's got a mission field. I mean, the the Holy Father, as the principle of unity for the whole Catholic Church, 1.34 whatever billion Catholics, he can't, he can't <laughs> individually shepherd 
everyone, right? So yeah. there's bishops throughout the world to do that at a diocesan level, but even there, they can't do, they can't minister to every single person. And so then you got a parish where the priests are partic- uh, participating in that. Well, even they can't get to every corner of a di- of a, of a parish, let's say. Um, but every single person, if they go to the place where they dwell, their home, their place of work, the places where they uh, hang out, the places where they shop, the places where they see people uh, in the public square or just in other places online, whatever, wherever it is, that's their mission field. Where you are is your mission field for the conversion of the world to Jesus. Wherever you are, as an individual, that's your job. You know, so as a priest, I oversee a parish and I try to facilitate uh, the people in that parish to reach those different domains. But those people are, the lay people are supposed to be reaching people in those domains, wherever they are, because there are so many places where the priest can, well, is not going to be able to reach people. Um, and it's not his job to reach everybody. It's, so the fact that he can't and the fact that he is not the one who is supposed to do it all should help the, the lay faithful realize, oh, yeah, then it must be me. Yep, <laughs> it's you. You have a mission field, so get after it. Yeah, I love that. I love that vision of the mission field um, because, you know, that gives us um, uh, that uh, understanding of I have to go out, right? Um, I have to, which is, um, you know, the mass <laughs> sending us out. Okay, you've been equipped. Now take what you're equipped with and go out um, and share it with the rest of the world. So um, that um, if we if we as Catholics are sitting in the pew and we're like, well, I don't see anything really going on. Um, you know, like you said, uh, well, um, this first uh, this first part um, is is just getting us started. But then a lot of that is on us to to say, okay, what am I supposed to be doing? And I and I think that sometimes I, I fall in this category too. Um, sometimes I wait too long for somebody to tell me what to go do rather than seeking it out. And so I thank you for giving us some of those uh, things like the National Eucharistic Revival newsletter to be able to go, oh, I can now go look and uh, I can start implementing this um, within my own parish. I don't have to wait for approval because I've already been given a mission. We need to go to a break right now, but don't change that dial. We'll be right back with more about the Eucharistic Revival with Father Craig Fossick. back on double-edged sword cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture eucharistic revival with father craig bossick cody marincer conducts the interview and let's get back to um, talking with um father bossick um, so as we're talking about Eucharistic revival, and as we've already talked about um, the Eucharist not being a thing, but being a person, being Jesus Christ himself. Father, why do you think Jesus would do something like that? Why would he make himself bound in this bread and wine? Could you give us your thoughts on that? Sure. I think I think it's very important to understand something even prior to that. Sure. Uh, because I think it then gives us our, our beginning of an answer. God, prior to the incarnation, is pure spirit, only and all pure spirit. He is uncontainable. He is ineffable. He is eternal, infinite. Uh, he is all creative and all powerful. He's all, he's all these things, but he's, he's invisible uh, for sure. And so pure spirit. So we have to first understand, well, if he changes himself, and I'm using that kind of loosely, because 
if he changes himself and now he's visible, why do you do that? And yeah. I think this is first first important. Why is it first important? It's first important because uh, it, it speaks to the the way by which God is laboring for us. It also speaks in a, I think, a universal way. Uh, so in particular for, let's say, people that are not Catholic, for them to understand they, they have trouble with the Eucharist. Well, do they have trouble with the Incarnation? Definitely not. They love the Incarnation. All Christians love the Incarnation. They love the fact that God took on a human nature in the person of Jesus. The second person of the Holy Trinity uh, takes on a human nature. Still God, 100% God, taking on a human nature, 100% human nature. And dwells, born from the flesh of the Virgin Mary, dwells on earth in the flesh for 33 years, offers him his life on the cross, uh, resurrects his own body, uh, his own life, and then ascends to his Father and is glorified in his uh, person and in his in his body, glorified body. So that's the first thing I think needs to be understood. Why did God do that? Yeah. Well, he didn't need to. You know, uh, he didn't need to. He could have snapped his invisible fingers. I suppose I'm not trying to be silly, <laughs> but he could have snapped his invisible fingers and saved us. He could have just said, "Okay, I erased the damage to to the sin of Adam and Eve and all the corruption that has happened since I just boom, I erase it all and now everybody's perfect again." could have done that like he actually can do that but he chose not to do that he chose a different way he chose to become incarnate and the reason why he chose to become incarnate some of that reason is because he wanted to demonstrate to us in a way that we can understand the depths of his love for us he wanted us to see in a way that we can see literally that we see it you know we we perceive things through our senses um and so he becomes incarnate because we're incarnate and we are the ones that he wants to love and that he does love, but he wants to show his love in the person of, of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice he offers. So that's first and foremost. God wants to demonstrate his love for us, and we receive that demonstration through our senses. And so the incarnation takes place to unite our nature to his divine nature to redeem us. You know, So there's a whole lot more depth to that theologically, yeah. but I think it's first and foremost we have to understand that. God became flesh so that we can see his love for us manifested, right? Um, so that's first. And I think once we understand that, then we can see from the divine logic why that would, uh, why Christ Jesus would then continue this work in a further way. So in his, uh, in his human life on earth, he could have, I suppose, if he wanted to, but he chose not to, be manifested in a thousand different manifestations of Jesus. He could have he could have been present in a thousand places at one time. Now it's kind of weird to think about, but he could have done it. God can do whatever he wants. But he chose to be limited into one human body uh, and to be in one human place at one human time of history. He chose that. He could have done it a different way, but he didn't. And he but he wants to be present with us in Throughout all the ages, behold, I will be with you to the end of the ages. I will be with you. Jesus wants to be with us throughout the centuries, throughout the ages, throughout the lands, throughout the nations, throughout all the areas. Well, how does he do it? He could multiply his human body into um, 126 different languages and however many countries there are in the world so that 8 billion people uh, see his historical body walking around on the earth. He could have done that. Uh, he didn't do that. And he probably didn't want to do that. Since he didn't do it, he probably didn't want to do that. And so I think that's just, you know, it might be silly to think about that, but I think that's what a lot of people want. They're like, why isn't Jesus just walking around being with us? Well, he chose not to do that. What did he choose? 
He said, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. What did he choose to do? He chose to take bread and wine and to say, this is my body and this is my blood. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life, and they will have the pledge of eternal life. And if you don't eat my flesh and you don't drink my blood, you don't have life. This is the way by which I want to share my life with you, is that I'm going to be made present in this, in this way for me to be with you, not only in one place in history, but in any place where you do this in remembrance of me. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And so the apostles start doing this, and then they spread the Christian faith throughout the entire world. And now we have, I don't know how many, hundreds of thousands of priests throughout the world that are doing this in remembrance of him, so that Jesus is being made present throughout time, 2,000 years, and throughout nations, throughout the entire globe, from the, from the east to the west, the perfect sacrifice is being offered daily. This is from the Old Testament, this prophecy, right before the time of Christ, from the east to the west, from the morning until the setting of the sun, a perfect sacrifice will be offered. This is to do this in remembrance of me of the Holy Eucharist. And so he, I mean, we can say more about this, but I think this is the beginning, is that he is showing a way by which he can manifest his love to us in the flesh. Yeah, that that is wonderful. You know, I had so many thoughts going on while you were talking there, uh, because uh, we are such fickle people. I mentioned this um, a little while ago, that um, if he did, as you said, um, and just multiplied himself um, in, um, in bodily form around the world, how long would it be before we're like, oh, hey, Jesus, and just kind of walking by? You know, um, I, I think, in fact, um, we do this with the Eucharist as it is that sometimes we, we walk in and because we are so spoiled here in the United States and we can go to mass daily if we want to, we can we have to be very careful about not getting into that. Um, you know, I'm just going to get in the line like a bunch of cattle and go up and uh, yeah, whatever, you know. Um, and, and so um, being God, I think he is very wise <laughs> in understanding that, um, you know, it's kind of like the spoiled child. If you give them everything right away, um, they may not completely disregard it. You know, they may be somewhat appreciative of it. But how long before they're just kind of like, yeah, whatever, you know? Um, and so as you were talking, that that, that kind of hit me there as, uh, you know, that that's maybe one of the reasons why he did that was because he wants us to have that amount of faith where we say, okay, um, even though maybe my eyes don't understand this, there's a greater reality here, and I can appreciate that. Uh, so uh, do you have anything more to say on that, Father? Well, I think you, you, you're speaking to something that's so—we see it everywhere. It's, it's all over the place, the, this idea of routine. Huh? Routine is, is not positive nor negative. It's a thing. Routine is the thing that you do something over and over again. And routine is not— uh, the thing that's good or bad, even though I would say it's good in that it's the way by which humans seem to thrive. Mm -hmm. They seem to thrive. So humans seem to thrive by a routine. <laughs> you take someone out of the routine, oftentimes after a while, they're like, you know what, I kind of need to get back to a routine. Yeah. Uh, the security of a routine. But routine is only good if it's an intentional routine. And it can be a habitual intention. We call that virtue. Uh, but it could also be just an empty routine by which the thing is... Uh, precisely it becomes emptied we take it for granted the routine whatever the thing might be in particular with things that are meant to be filled with meaning if i do it in a routine way with and i lose the meaning that's supposed to be in the routine well then it becomes empty and, and i lose it and i take it for granted and i walk by jesus like some people did they walked by jesus and they yep. said oh who's this guy you know he's the son of a carpenter i don't care about this guy whatever he's not gonna yep. do nothing for me uh, but routine so this is 
the task at hand for us is to make sure that the routines by which we live become the, the things by which we grow and we become holy through the routine. This is, that's, this is exactly what virtue is. I worked with college athletes for the last four years. I don't work with them anymore. But it was all about, I mean, their routines are, that's all they do is routines, with working out and exercising and running faster, jumping higher and lifting more weights and all these different things. They had to be so careful about everything that they're doing to make sure that those routines were helpful, healthy, and productive routines. Same thing, even more so important with regard to our interior life of holiness and growth is that our routines become ways by which we become holy, by which we become stronger, by, by which we become who we're meant to be in imitation of Christ Jesus. So uh, routine is, uh, is, is imperative for us to understand that it's, it's filled with meaning. Um, and and the, to go back to this question anyway about why would Jesus give this gift of himself in the Eucharist in this way, I've mentioned God's God's desire to love us in the way by which we can see this. And so just to highlight who we are as a human person uh, and to highlight who we are as a human person as distinct from an angel. An angel is pure spirit. And so God does not become incarnate for the angels. God does not give them material things because they don't need that. Maybe to give one more example, uh, to take a, a simple flower. A flower doesn't need a whole lot of things. A flower does need sun. A flower does need rain. A flower does need air. It's the way by which they flourish. So God gives them those things. God doesn't give to flowers things that they don't need. He doesn't give them uh, internet connection. They don't need it. I suppose you can use internet connection to like do things with flowers, but like it's still to communicate what they need, right? So what is the human person? What does the human person need? The human person is both spirit and body. So we're not an angel uh, only, spirit, but we're also not flower that just needs sun and water and uh, other whatever nutrition. We need both. We need stuff for the spirit and we need stuff for the body. And so Jesus wants to communicate his divine life to us and he needs to minister to us uh, to our bodies, but it's not so much to our bodies. It's through our bodies. He communicates through our bodies because of who we are. We're humans. So if God right now in an imperceptible way uh, zapped everybody with a bunch of divine grace. And again, this is very simple language and it's not very accurate. We would not know that he did it. We might see the fruits of it, obviously, but mm -hmm. we wouldn't really know where it came from, when it came, how that happened, whatever. But God makes use of physical and material substances, realities, because of who we are as physical and material substances. We are both body and spirit. So this is for God to make himself present to us and to communicate his life to us, he makes use of material realities which convey, uh, communicate invisible realities. Yes. Because I, we're humans. Uh, I, sorry, I, I don't want to cut you off there. What was your thought? No. No, just because we're humans, that's it. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Yeah, you know, I look at it uh, like this uh, as you're speaking there. Uh, once again, many things come to mind, but um, it's if you have a loved one, and uh, let's say that um, you are um, married and uh, you're away from that person for a week at a time. Um, it's wonderful to talk to them on the phone. But what's better when you get to be with them in person, you get to embrace them, you get to hug them. And so as you were speaking, that, that's kind of what came to my mind is, is something like that is Christ, when he um, said he wanted to be with us, he wanted to give himself to us um, when, whenever 
we are willing to avail ourselves to him. And so, yes, it's great to um, listen to him speak to us through his word. It's great to have those conversations with him in prayer. Um, but then even what is better is to receive him fully in the Eucharist when we go to Mass. And so thank you for such wise words there, uh, Father. Father, you already talked to us a little bit about the grassroots part of this Eucharistic revival. And I think a lot of that can start right here on these radio waves. How do we start forming our own hearts toward Christ more for this revival, Father? Yes, this is good to speak of. If I can delay it one more time, though, I would Absolutely. like to say about uh, what else we have going on. We have, the, I mentioned the national, the kind of the layout for things. We're in the diocesan phase right now, and we'll be moving into the parish phase. Uh, in June. So in the parish year of the revival, there's going to be a whole lot of things. Uh, there's going to be speakers all over the country going around speaking about um, the Eucharist, speaking about a living relationship with Jesus, speaking about the, the salvation that we have in him. There's going to be speakers all over the country. And hopefully we have 17,000 parishes in the United States. We're hoping that all 17,000 have events, you know, to, to have people speaking, to have uh, Eucharistic uh, celebrations. Of adoration processions and holy mass, all these different things for people to grow in their ability and desire to go out and let everybody else in their town know about Jesus in the Eucharist at the Catholic Church, right? So that's the parish year. What we're really excited about for the parish year is that there's going to be small group studies. We're working with a number of really key national apostles to develop an exquisite uh, offering for all parishes to use, which is going to be very simple. People can, any parish will be able to use this resource, a video, really well-crafted video resource on the Holy Eucharist and a living relationship with Jesus. And even if people can't get into a small group, they could do it on their own. We'll have links for people just to watch it on their own. But we're hoping that small groups are formed all over the country, new small groups, existing ones that they would continue, but that more and more small groups would be formed in parishes for growth in, in their faith and growth in and missionary zeal. So that's going to be during the parish year. And then what's really exciting is the in 2024 uh, there's a number of things happening as the parish year comes to an end, which is there's going to be a National Eucharistic Congress, the first one in 70 years in the United States of America. Uh, it's going to be in Indianapolis. We're hoping for 80 to 100,000 people. Pre-registration has already started uh, for bishops who want to secure some spots for people, key people in the diocese or whoever they want to secure them for. And then that'll open up to the faithful uh, late January, early February. Uh, and we're hoping to have 80 to 100,000 people in Indianapolis in 2024, July 17th to 21st. You might as well mark a calendar now. It's going to be the Catholic event of the last 70 years. Well, I suppose we had World Youth Day back in 1993. The Holy Father's come to visit us in 2015. But this is going to be a big event for the nation. And uh, where do we find so that, that, Father? So the con so Eucharistic Revival website again is eucharisticrevival.org, okay. uh, but also the Congress just launched their website, which is National Eucharistic Congress uh, website, and uh, people can find out more information there for the Congress, July 17th through 21, 2024. You might be like, well, 2024 that's a long ways away. It's only 2022. Yeah, well, it's gonna there's there's uh, millions and millions of Catholics in America, and only 80 to 100,000 will be able to get in the door. So we're expecting that even more than that will come, and there'll be around events and participating some, but they might not be able to get into the building. So I would definitely suggest people to get ready to uh, reserve their seats, reserve their spots as soon as that comes out in early February. And as we see it fill, then that'll help us who are planning it to work out logistics for expanding the uh, 
the stadium uh, and the availability of the various things so that more and more people can actually come. And we'd love to build that up to 150,000 even. But right now we're focused on the 80 to 100,000 benchmark. So that's 2024. Leading up to that, though, that's July 2024. Leading up to that, May, June, and July of 2024, there's going to be a National Eucharistic Pilgrimage. And that's going to be started from four different places in the United States of America, four different uh, corners, we could say, north, south, east, and west. Uh, one's going to start in San Francisco, California, and they're going to walk all the way to Indianapolis. Another one's going to start in southern uh, Texas, just south of Corpus Christi. It's a pretty good spot to start, Corpus Christi, Body of Christ, in southern Texas, all the way up to Indianapolis. Another one at the uh, Blessed McGivney's Tomb, New Haven, Connecticut, walking all the way from there to Indianapolis. Another one from northern Minnesota, which is actually where I'm from. Uh, walking from Crookston, Minnesota, down to Indianapolis. And people can join on that pilgrimage for as much or as little as they want. They can walk the whole thing with uh, different processions of the Blessed Sacrament. At every night, there's going to be parish events along the way with adoration and masses and uh, testimonies and service opportunities. And it's just going to be those four places are just going to be migrating towards uh, Indianapolis for three months. It's going to be absolutely exquisite. It's one of those things that most people are most excited about for the revival or these these uh, big initiatives that are going to be unfolding in 2024, which is really exciting. So EucharisticRevival.org uh, is, the, is the national site, and then Eucharistic Congress, National Eucharistic Congress, has their own website that they just launched last week. You can find out more about that. So I wanted to make sure that I highlighted those things. They're all they're all really uh, exciting initiatives that we're doing for the parish year and then also for the uh, national missionary sending year uh, with that event in Indianapolis. So I wanted to say all that and then for sure want to finish with this uh, question that you asked. Okay, definitely. Let me uh, let me hop in there really quick because I want to thank you for yeah. all of that. that is, I can't, I'm so excited to hear all of that. I, I've only been Catholic for 17 years, but um, as far as I know, there's never really been anything like this done, has there? I mean, I know we had um, the uh, uh, World Youth Day, like you said, but that's that's a completely different event. Um, it, it, has there ever been anything in the United States like this where we're going to have all these different Corpus Christi processions for such, you know, big areas and stuff like that? Uh, there's there's all of these elements exist in different ways. So you have processions at people's parishes, uh -huh. you have events in dioceses, you have uh, pilgrimages that go across the country for different things in different ways. You have events where people come together, but I don't think we've ever seen this before where there is uh, a center place that people are all going towards for a National Eucharistic Congress. We've had those in the past. This will be our 10th one in our, in our nation's history, but never was there also yoked to that four different routes of pilgrimage walking yeah. across the country. Uh, so I mean, this is a this is a new thing. It is a, a beautiful thing, and we're hoping that it, it sets a lot of things on fire, uh, both in the Catholic world, but also in the greater Christian world, and also in the secular world, that people start catching on, like the Catholics are up to something. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's any other word to explain it except for awesome. That, that's just awesome. <laughs> so, uh, Father, we've got, uh, we've got about uh, nine minutes left with you to impart some more wisdom on us um, what, what do you want to leave us with today sure well i think it's to come back you know i've kind of been delaying this but i mentioned at the beginning the grassroots element and there's going to be plenty of things coming out you know from the national office we're going to continue to work really hard with a lot of collaborators and uh, dynamic apostolates to make more and more good resources and evangelical tools and missional equipping and all these different things there's going to be dioceses that are going to be working hard and parishes that are working hard. all those things are going to continue so that's great but again, it comes back to what the individual person, we're, we're asking God, we're begging God that he would pour out his Holy Spirit upon all of us, 
And so uh, what what some people have done is that they've they've said things like, and maybe someone that's listening has said this too. I heard that there's a revival, but then I, nobody told me what to do next. And uh, it's exactly right there that I would want to just pause because what we're saying over and over again from our, our domain is that we are not starting or launching a program, but we're lighting a fire. We are lighting a fire. We're lighting a fire. We're not launching. A, so you're not going to find a, a program is not on its way. I mean, there might be some things that we equip people with, but that's not, that's not our like highest task, you know, uh, or it's not like our, if we get this done, then we really did a revival, we put out a parish small group. So like, that's no way more than this. Right. So there will be programs, there will be studies, there will be things, there will be whatever, there'll be things. Right. Um, but our, we are not, we're not launching a program, uh, or starting a program. We're lighting a fire. And so this is where a person who says, I heard that we were going to have a revival, but then I wasn't told what to do next. Nobody gave me anything to do. This is where I'd ask the person just to pause and say, no, 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 no. This is grassroots. This is the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of the faithful. And he wants to visit you. He wants to visit you personally and individually. And so what I ask a person to do is don't look for something. I mean, of course, people have to work with their pastors, work with their bishops, work within the framework of the church. Uh, I'm taking that for granted. So please make sure you're doing that. Don't go rogue. I'm not asking (laughs) you to go rogue. But what I am asking everybody to do is just pause and not ask, what is someone going to tell me to do? But rather to pause and ask the Holy Spirit, what do you have for me to do? And so just to turn inward, and I'll just say this because I think a lot of people are like, I don't know how to hear God, you know, and they use the word hear, like it's going to come in through their ears. Uh And that's not usually the way that God communicates to us. Again, we've already talked about this. He communicates with us the way that we are made. We're, We're a human. What does a human have? A human has an intellect. The intellect has an imagination and it has a memory and it has an understanding. God speaks to that. And God also communicates through the aspirations and affections and desires of our heart, uh, the movements of us, right? And so the scripture tells us to test everything, sure, but it's through those ways. So I'm going to I'm going to have an image. I'm going to have a, a desire. I'm going to have a memory of something. There's going to be something that comes into my imagination, a creative thing that I've come up with, a word that pops up, uh, an image that pops up, a phrase that pops up, a person's name that pops up, or, or a desire to do this, or an affection, or a, something turns on over here. And it's like, man, I'm just being drawn. Pay attention to that. When you pray to the Holy Spirit and you say, what do you want me to do? And the next thing that comes into your mind is coffee and rolls. And you're like, what the heck? That has nothing to do with anything. Maybe your parish needs to start having coffee and rolls, and that's going to be your way of doing something that helps to revitalize your parish. But now, again, that's maybe someone will say, well, that's too silly of a a thing. It's not too silly. There's nothing too little. Then There's nothing too great. There's nothing too old. There's nothing too new. It's, It's whatever God is truly placing within me. And so when I pause and I say, Holy Spirit, reveal to me show me how it is that i am to respond i might then the next day get an email from a catholic publisher saying new book on the eucharist or something who knows what it'll be pay attention (laughs) pay attention to what's happening around you and within you because it's very it's it's the same where i am is my mission field also where i I am is what god is going to communicate to me and pay attention holy spirit show me reveal to me uh, illumine me inflame my heart that i might see how it is that i am to respond probably going to include praying 
probably going to go praying before the Blessed Sacrament. It's probably going to include reading the scriptures. It's probably going to be pro- uh, proclaiming uh, the gift of Jesus in the Eucharist. It's probably going to be participating in the life of the parish, but it's going to go way beyond. <laughs> Who knows what it's going to look like? It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be bold. It's going to be creative. It's going to be God. It's going to be a revival. And we've got to let it start. We're lighting a fire. That is fantastic. That helps so much. Um, so that we don't just to think, uh, like you said, oh, check it off the list, one and done. <laughs> so thank you so much, Father, for your time. We we appreciate uh, your wisdom. We appreciate your help in understanding this um, and uh, um, hopefully starting that fire in our own hearts. Um, I would ask, uh, w- would you be willing to uh, leave us with your blessing um, as we close today? Sure thing. May the Lord pour out his spirit upon you. As the Lord poured out his Holy Spirit upon the apostles and Our Lady in the upper room on Pentecost, may the Holy Spirit be poured out in our land, across our entire country, that we might come into a living relationship with Jesus, become Eucharistic missionaries, proclaiming his love and his triumph uh, to everyone that we meet. May the Lord fill your heart with his blessing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you so much for being on with us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to Double-Edged Sword, Cutting to the Heart of a Deceptive Culture. If you are a business or service that can help underwrite this Double-Edged Sword show, please call us at 785-621-4110. You're listening to the network of stations of Divine Mercy Radio. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts.